Hey, Holly here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some information with you about some workshops that we're running. Here at Ashore Product Science, we love to teach workshops, both public workshops, private workshops at companies, and even an online workshop for people who can't come to see us in person. If you're interested in learning how to identify the right products and features to build and how to develop the support to do so with the product science method, come and join us. You can learn more at ashoreproductscience.com workshops. Hi, and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm super excited to share uh, Tim O'Reilly. I reached out to Tim after reading his article on the problem with Silicon Valley's favorite growth strategy and asked if he would like to come and talk about it with me. And I'm super excited that he's here. So welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me. So um, maybe you can share in case some of our listeners, I'm sure they know uh, they know who you are, but um, tell us a little bit about um, sort of how you, um, how you built up to this perspective that you have now and what, um, what you think about uh, the, the, what led you to write that article? Yeah, so to understand my background, you have to realize that I started my business now nearly 40 years ago. We were a technical writing consulting company. We started seeing that our clients wanted, uh, all, all needed the same kind of manual. So we started uh, uh, retaining the rights and then we started publishing them as books. And so we became a publisher really for the internet era very early on. Uh, We published our first books uh, in the mid eighties. Actually, and this to give you the idea of how far we were from the idea of a high growth, uh, you know, tech company of today. uh, You know, the first print run of our first books was a hundred copies each and they sold for $5. Uh, So that was like a total, potential revenue from that first print run of $1,000. <laughs> and I started my company with $500, which was in the form of used furniture. Uh, and awesome. uh, we basically, uh, our product business really was done in the cracks of our consulting business. When uh, we didn't have a paying client, I wanted to keep people busy. So I said, let's write a manual about something that we know we need that other people probably need. So we had this focus on the user. And actually, it was very very central to who we were. Uh, It's sort of astonishing to people today to understand how far we were from being user-centered in the computer industry. When I I began as a a writer in in the industry, it was not considered appropriate to write in the second person. You know, you simply describe the product. You know, the, the, you know, the device does this, the program does this, and yeah. it was all for the person. And, and, and one of the great revelations when we had our, were writing our own books, we could just, you know, talk to the user. It was also forbidden, you know, to, for example, writing a manual for one of our early clients to say, this feature is, is janky or it doesn't work. And again, once we were able to write our own books, we were able to say, hey, you're not crazy. This doesn't work very well you know, and explain workarounds and so on. So we were, we were kind of the voice of, of uh, you know, kind of the, the user that you, who was a little ahead of you, who you wished you had uh, looking over your shoulder. 
And so our business grew from there. And you know, we're now you know, roughly a $200 million a year revenue company. Um, but each piece of it has been just paying attention to user needs and trying to fill them. Uh, you know, our conference business, which we launched in 1997, uh, came about because uh, our best-selling books were on the Perl programming language. Uh, Sun Microsystems, which is a company which has, uh, you know, was one of these high-flying companies that no longer exists, uh, uh, had just launched uh, a conference called Java One for the Java programming language. And I said, who's doing that for Perl? Nobody is. And And so I really thought of the first conference really is just marketing this open source community. And uh, it was this amazing, you know, coming together people who had only known each other online. And we said, this is great. So let's do it for other communities. So we, that, that led to what was we called the open source software convention, uh, which was really our first conference. And then from there, we, we went on and uh, built a, you know, a, a, a multi-million, multi tens of millions of dollars uh, events business. Uh, we launched our, the third leg of our stool in uh, 2001 when we were there were a lot of, of high growth startups uh, again in the in the ebook space uh, we had been playing around with ebooks since the late 80s we have some history there that is too too uh, deep to go into but uh, so these people came to us and we said that's a shitty business model for us you know we're not going to participate because you know they, they kind of were telling me we have this subscription and it'll be uh, you know, a thousand, you know, books and it'll cost 99 bucks and we'll share $20 of that with the publishers. And I kind of did the math for them. I said, so you're essentially offering me six cents a book uh, per user. Uh, we can't live on that. And so I decided to build a service that was, and this is really an important thing. It was, it was both user and supplier centric in, in that we were mindful that our, we had to make money for our authors. You know, if we wanted them mm -hmm. to keep living in this, producing in this future. And we also went to our biggest competitors and we really, so we built a marketplace business very early on, 2001. Um, but if you look at the history of a lot of marketplace businesses, they end up screwing their supplier side a lot. Yeah. yeah in fact, my, I'm writing it right now, a sequel to the Blitzscaling article, uh, which is really about the way more and more of the, 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 real estate on the Google search results page is devoted to Google, uh, you know, Google's products themselves. And we're also in the position that Google is in of being both a platform owner and a platform supplier, i.e. we're competing on our own platform with our suppliers. But we're really mindful that we have to actually be fair. And, uh, you know, whereas I, I wrote about this in the Blitzscaling article, you can see that Google, which started out with 50-50 revenue from advertising on Google.com and only 18% um, on, on third-party websites. Now, there's maybe a lot of reasons for that, and I go into that more in this new article I'm writing. But by contrast, we've really ended up maintaining a pretty consistent share of um, of, of the revenues from the platform, because we're really mindful that if we, if we take too much of the pie, our suppliers are gonna go away. And so I, I really ended up uh, starting to develop kind of a theory of marketplaces that is built around uh, how the way that an efficient marketplace is a lot like an ecosystem. It has to be circular. 
it has to keep you know revenues flowing back to the suppliers and this the typical silicon valley model it seems to me is a lot more like the extractive model in other parts of our economy you know the goal is to keep growing at all costs and you have you see these companies that start out as uh initially value creating companies for the whole ecosystem you know back when i was first in in you know starting my business the the big dog was microsoft and they were creating value through building this uh, you know universe of of the personal computer software and then bit by bit they took off all the best applications and everybody then went to the internet which wasn't yet commercial and where there was a greenfield opportunity and now i've watched over the last you know 15 20 years as the greenfield opportunity of the internet has been slowly borged if you like by uh, the the winners uh, and, and so we have this winners take all mentality uh, which is the other way of uh, of really you know looking at reed hoffman's blitzscaling book he's literally saying this is all these internet businesses are winner takes all markets and so you should basically be the winner and here's how to be the winner and my belief instead is that yes there are some people who become the winners but they have a responsibility to the losers and and it's not that the others are losers you can have a win win you know so if we had seen when we built our online platform which was originally for ebooks but eventually became for uh all kinds of of online learning we have video, we have uh, interactive uh, uh, content of various kinds, even live training that's delivered on, over the net. If we had seen this as a zero sum game with our competitors, we would have taken more and more of the value on the platform. And instead, we literally, we say, oh, we introduced this new live online training feature. Our, our supplier partners didn't get on board, even though we evangelized the feature of them. They didn't get on board as quickly as we did. So our largest supplier, their revenue fell by half in the next month because it was such a popular feature. The, the revenue is allocated by usage of which content products people use. And what did we do? We didn't do a little victory dance. We actually dropped the price of our products uh, radically uh, so that we didn't take too much of the pie. Uh, but we, we were trying to calibrate it so that they would be incentivized to produce more of this content that we wanted on the platform. And so this balancing act of how do you actually serve users, but also uh, serve the people, uh, make it possible for others to serve users through your platform, I think is, 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 is sort of central to my thinking. Yeah. So can you actually tell us a little more about that? I think, um, so I'm super fascinated about the ecosystem and the, deciding which levers to pull when you want to change something about it. And I'm curious how you made the decision um, with what you were just describing uh, about what part of the pie they get and what in you dropping your price. Can you tell us a little more about, um, about what went into that and how you made the decision that that lever versus one of the other levers was what you should have moved? Well, I mean, we didn't have very many levers. I mean, we have an algorithm for allocating revenue on the platform. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the price of the product times the usage of the product. Uh, and so uh, it, since our usage was going way up, uh, we, the only thing we had to, to, to put down was the price to, so that we didn't take too much of the pie. But why did, why did we do it? I think that really goes back to, you know, our original sort of orientation 
which was that we we realized our, that we were an intermediary between a network of people who knew something and a network of people who wanted to know something. And we didn't know everything ourselves. I mean, many of our original books we wrote ourselves. I mean, we were really a writing firm that started publishing our own books about things um, that we had learned. But then we realized, oh, there's all these things that we don't know. And, and of course, we started publishing books from others. And uh, you know, we have to incentivize those people. We have to give them value. And some of that value was, was in the form of uh, revenue and royalties from, from the books, the success of the books. But some of it was also from the exposure, you know, people who said, hey, I got my new job because of, of the, you know, the reputation that you helped me build. And then that led very naturally to the, the events, because that was a way of, of not only of sharing knowledge, but of helping people build reputation. So, again, we're thinking a lot about not just the benefit to our users, but the benefit to the people who will benefit the users. And it's a big contrast to, to how. Uh, you know, so many businesses operate, you know, you see the stories about, you know, Uber and, and effectively the feeling that the drivers who were originally given this great come on, it's this great opportunity, you'll make all this money. And then bit by bit, they kind of start squeezing the drivers while continuing to favor the users. And it's just not sustainable. Uh, just any more than, you know, if you look at the changes in farming, you know, where it was like, well, we'll just you know, have to keep putting more artificial fertilizers on, on because we're doing this extractive agriculture. And, uh, you know, like something like half the topsoil uh, in America has, uh, or worldwide is gone through that method. And, and people are starting to go, oh, we actually have to discover how to build regenerative agriculture that, that builds the soil again. And, and it's very similar. I mean, you have these companies that, uh, you know, uh, where venture capital is substituted uh, for a, a real regenerative living system. You know, you know, Uber and Lyft are on the drip of venture capital. That's just like uh, massive inputs of fertilizer from you know, Monsanto uh, keeping our farming you know, ecosystem going. And it doesn't end well. Yeah. So what do you think, um, I mean, you have such a breadth of, of years seeing all of these, inter these systems at play. Have there been periods where sort of more companies were on the uh, the drip from venture capital and periods where it wasn't as strong? And how do you think that affected which which companies were winning and, and not winning? Uh, my, in my experience, most innovation happens in periods when venture capital is scarce, uh, you know, and, mm -hmm. it's, uh, and in areas where venture capital is, you know, is not interested. You know, if you think about the, the, the um, uh, the great companies uh, of today, you know, Apple was uh, a, a sort of this rogue uh, company in this early PC era. And when all the giants of the industry were saying the PC is just a toy, why bother? Um, you know, both, the, you know, both Apple and Microsoft came out of that era. Um, you know, in, in, in the web, you know, Google was uh, you know, in a category that literally all the venture capitalists had abandoned. They said, well, well search engines aren't won't amount to anything. Um, uh, you know, Amazon very early in e-commerce uh, and, you know, in a category that nobody thought really was that important, you know, what a, it's a bookstore. Uh, you know, so, and, and in fact, you know, when we, we, we actually, you know, my company created the first commercial website 
And nobody thought that internet had commercial potential. You know, we were really on the very forefront of people. In fact, it was illegal for the internet to be used for commercial purposes. And we had to get a special dispensation from the National Science Foundation uh, to run uh, ads on uh, GNN, which is the Global Network Navigator. It was kind of like a, a predecessor to Yahoo. It started about a year before Yahoo. It was a, you know, portal. It uh, was the first site that had advertising. We actually had to do a, a market research telemarketing, we, you know, where we had to call up 50,000 people and do research on demographics of internet usage because nobody believed that advertising could actually work on the internet. And I, I should also add that our version of advertising was not the banner ad you see today. And again, this also tells you something about uh, product development. You, you, you are shaped by who you are and where you are. And we were a, uh, we were, at the time we were a publisher uh, who sold largely through direct mail. Uh, we had actually begun to, to, you know, be discovered by bookstores. They found us. We didn't, you know, see them as a target market. We sold directly to consumers. And so our experience of, of advertising was of how do you get information about products to people? And at the time, uh, there were these crazy things, which people of your generation won't remember at all, but the, you know, like if you got a, 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 you got a print magazine or a newspaper and there was a, a tear off card in the middle that looked like a bingo card, it had little numbers, you know, like, you know, row, you know, zero to, you know, uh, uh, 40. Every advertisement had a number associated with it. And you would circle the ones that you want to get a brochure mailed to you. And so what we realized was that the web would mean that all these brochures wouldn't have to get mailed out anymore. People could just go to a website. And so it was the idea of the commercial website that was literally a description of the products and services of a company that were the first internet ads. Because up to that point, there were no commercial sites on the web. And at that point in time, you had to get um, legal permission to, to put that on the internet? Yeah, because, yes. The, the, uh, the internet was under the auspices of the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. And they had something called an acceptable use policy. And it was basically for, uh, the internet was for research and, and education. And uh, it was funny because I, I had a conversation with this guy named Steve Wolf, who at the time was the, 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 you know, the administrator for the internet <laughs> and at the NSF. And I explained what we were doing. And he understood that we weren't talking about sending out ads to people. We were just talking about building a site that had commercial content. And it, you know, because of who we were, it was mostly it was educational, informational content. And he said, well, if, if you guys aren't about research and education, I don't know who is, so go for it. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was kind of a turning point on the internet because you know, there were big mailing lists. It was a mailing list called CommPrib, Commercialization and Privatization of the Internet. It was a government thing and the government set the rules and then they set it free. Wow. That's a fascinating tidbit. I had no idea. Do you, um, did the stuff that you put on the internet back then really stick within this realm of, well, it's commercial, but it's all education. And what was it like when you started to see, you know, things that weren't about education? Uh, well, it, 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 became, it became ghastly, you know, I mean, the internet went, you know, the, the banner ad was invented. We're kind of seeing again, uh, you know, whether it be flashing, blinking, you know, and, and that's why like Google came out in 1998 and, and they basically said, we're not going to do any of that. You know, they just said, screw it. 
you know, if, if that's what it takes to, to, to run a website, we're not interested. We're just going to build a better service. And so Google originally had this wonderful model where they you know, produced the search results. They had a better model for the product, but they also had a better model for the business. They said, look, a really good ad is going to be just like a search result. And they were just two parallel columns. You know, it's like, this will be something that people want. And we're going to try to, rather than selling to the highest bidder, the original breakthrough of Google's advertising was we're going to actually sell to the, the we're going to sell, uh, a, they had an auction model, but they also took into account the likelihood for the ad to be clicked on. You know, so if you think about, uh, you know, how you make money on a, oh, it was also pay-per-click, which was not invented by Google, but it was invented by a company called Overture, which then got bought by, by, uh, by Yahoo. But um, Google perfected the model. And the model was, uh, you know, instead of paying for, oh, you got a million impressions of your ad or 50,000 impressions or 100,000, it's this much per impression. It was like, we're going to only charge you when somebody clicks on your ad. And Google had figured out that they could do the math and say, well, an ad that, uh, we, uh, you know, somebody bids in the auction, say, let's just say a dollar for this position and somebody else bids $2. But the the $1 ad is three is going to be clicked three times and the $2 ad is going to be clicked once. We're going to make more money from the $1 ad, right? So they'll get $3 instead of two. So they actually had this really interesting, you know, innovation, which also was about serving their users. Yeah. I think that's, that's great. It comes back full circle to um, their, their system had people on both sides and they, designed the system in a way where the more value that was created, the more value um, you know, everybody got, including them. Yeah, and I think that it's just one of the missed pieces in so much of the Silicon Valley dogma, which tells you to focus on users. And I think that, that the real secret is you have to focus on everybody who matters, everybody who's a stakeholder in your system. You know, so when I think of our product innovations, a huge number of them come from thinking about uh, how do we continue to serve our suppliers, our authors, our conference presenters? Uh, how do we make th this work for them so that they keep doing what they do? And, and, and in some cases, we, we even said, how do we make this work for our competitors? You know, when we, we started, uh, what at the time was called Safari Books Online, and now it's just integrated into O'Reilly. We literally invited our biggest competitor who had a group internally that they called the O'Reilly Killers to be our partner in the venture, you know, because we thought that it would be better for the whole ecosystem if more people were, at the time, producing ebooks. Remember, this is seven years before the Kindle. It's 2000. Kindle came out in 2007. Ebooks were kind of this new thing that publishers were very dubious about. And we said, well, if we just do it, from O'Reilly, you know, we'll, we'll get a small dedicated, uh, you know, set of, of, of cutting edge users. But if we want it to, to really take off, we have to get the whole ecosystem on board. So we spent a lot of time evangelizing, not just our, 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 our customers, not just our authors, but also our competitors and even, uh, you know, publishers in other parts of the industry, because we realized you've got to bring the whole market up. 
where did you, um, where did you develop that learning? Cause I, I do feel like it's something where, you know, when you explain it, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. But I know I talked to business people who like would fight tooth and nail <laughs> about doing that. So how, how did you come to that realization? You know, it, it's hard to say. Uh, I, I think some of it had to do with the fact that we, uh, you know, we were on a slow burn, you know, we weren't, uh, you know, ha on, on this race where we, uh, had raised a bunch of capital and we had to, you know, get, uh, you know, to some predetermined point that would make the venture capitalists happy. We were just trying to, you know, feel our way forward. We were exploring and, and thinking. Now, I do think our values were part of it. I, I, you know, I grew up in a household where my father used to borrow money so he could meet his charitable obligations. <laughs> you know, um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think I, I sort of, kind of had that that background uh, but also I spent a lot of time you know early in my career before I was even in the technical writing area I had written a book about Frank Herbert the science fiction writer author of Dune uh, and he, he dealt a lot with ecological themes in in this Dune series and so I'd spent a bunch of time looking at ecology not to mention being a fan of the whole earth catalog and that whole uh, you know period so I kind of had ecological metaphors uh, deeply rooted in my thinking. And, and so they, th those were framing ideas for me. Yeah, natural systems uh, teach us a lot about uh, the world. And, and when, we, when we, we think only of, again, back to this blitzscaling idea, which is, you know, if you, if you strip away the technological trappings, the Silicon Valley, you know, shiny patina, and, and, and you use that to describe, say, an oil company, you know, blitzscaling, or a, you know, a gold mining company, or a, uh, you know, an agribusiness, uh, you know, swallowing up all the small farms, everybody would go, is that really the way we want to build our economy? Is that really right? And, you know, in some ways, maybe I'm a throwback to a, a different economy, but I think we can, I think it's also the next economy because as we, we do want big globe spanning platforms, they, you know, create Im immense opportunity and uh, information liquidity. And, you know, in the same way you think about container shipping, how it's, uh, you know, enabled free trade. But we've got to pair that with, with a, a kind of ecological circular model where we don't, you know, turn those platforms into extractive machines, but into supporting platforms uh, for a, a much more holistic economy in which everyone wins. And of course, you see this in the political debate today, uh, you know, where people are starting to, to say again, wait a minute, we built an economy where some people uh, you know, win really, really big, and other people don't. And and, and again, it's not it's not that simple because even in, you know the, the parallel between say, an Uber in which passengers really win, and uh, an Uber really wins but drivers get screwed, is kind of analogous to you know the free trade regime that we have in uh, today, where uh, you know giant corporations really, really win, people in developing countries really, really win. And uh, American, uh, you know, workers were left out in the cold. And, you know, so the question is, how do we build better markets? There's, there's a book I love. It's, it's, uh, 
it was actually given to me by Uber's chief economist. It's called Who Gets What and Why? And it's by a guy named Al Roth, who's a Stanford economics professor, uh, who basically founded a field called market design. And he got a Nobel Prize for his work on redesigning uh, kidney transplant marketplaces so they could be more efficient. And, and this idea that uh, has obsessed me over the last uh, you know, four or five years has been you know, the great opportunity of AI and big data systems is actually to design better markets. And, you know, we, we think that we have this optimal market where it's just the invisible hand and people competing and so on. But, but we're really moving into a world of algorithmically controlled markets and have the best intentions. We're going to bring the world together by sharing and discover that the market you've created is actually a very bad market. And then you have to redesign and, and, and intervene. And so this, uh, you know, what I'm really spending a lot of time doing is trying to wake up Silicon Valley to the idea that the market is not a given that it's something you have to design and you have to design it uh, with everyone in mind. Yeah, I love that. I'd never heard of um, this, uh, the book, Who Gets What and Why, but I will check it out because it, it sounds like it's a, a lot of what I've been thinking about and why I was so fascinated by your article and perspective is um, not just markets, but, but government and entire systems of, of society and organization and yeah. how AI and big data and, and all of this infrastructure we have today just, I mean, it just completely changes the raw materials that we have to design how the world works. And yeah, exactly. What, what if we think about that instead? And, you know, how would, what was this market supposed to get us? And how do we redesign it with the materials we have today? It could do an even better job. Yeah, and in my book, uh, which I published in 2017 called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, uh, I spent a lot of time really kind of building uh, sort of some of the, the, the mental toolbox for thinking about market design. But and looking at, for example, the way Google search works so well because they took hundreds of factors into account. They had an overriding uh, objective function or fitness function, which which was you know, relevance for the user, but they, they took all these different factors into account. And I go, could we start to do that in the real world? And, and then, but I also look at why, does those, why do those systems break down? And I actually use the analogy that, that our, uh, the big data and algorithmic systems and AI that we build today is a lot like the genies in Arabian mythology. You know, if you've ever, you know, read Thousand and One Nights or you know, even just seeing Aladdin or, you know, uh, you, you know the, uh, the story is, is always of you, you, you tell the genie what you want, you get three wishes or whatever, and you always get them wrong and, yes. uh, and, and great mayhem uh, results. And so, you know, Facebook got their genie and they told it, you know, uh, and YouTube too, you know, like do things that, that people find engaging. And uh, unfortunately, the things that people found engaging were not always healthy for them. And uh, now Facebook is basically trying to give the genie other commands. <laughs> and uh, uh, this whole idea of debugging, and, and by the way, it's, it's uh, one of the, back, way back in my career, uh, there was a guy named Andrew Singer. Uh, we, I was writing a manual for his company and he said something marvelous to me, which I, I remembered ever since. He said, 
the skill of debugging is to figure out what you really told your program to do instead of what you thought you told your program to do. And it, 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 it's so relevant for, for algorithms. What is it really doing versus what you thought it was doing? And you know, we have to actually do that at the level of our entire economy. You know, there are people who said, who designed our economy just as surely as Google and Facebook designed their algorithms. And, you know, they say, well, we're going to have these tax rates. Uh, we're going to have these incentives. Uh, we're going to, um, you know, have these rules about trade. And, uh, and it's going to have these positive outcomes. And suddenly they're finding, well, the outcomes weren't quite what we thought. And this is often on large timescales. I mean, this is true with a company like Google or back in the day, Microsoft, you know, it took 20, 30 years to figure out that there was something slightly wrong here and that needs adjustment. And I, I think that, um, you know, we're in a phase right now where we're saying, wait, these economic algorithms that we put in place, are they really working? And that's why I've, I've been very focused really on thinking about the analogies between you know, the great tech platforms and government as a platform. That's just something I've been on for the last 10 years. And I do a lot of work on that with my wife, Jennifer Palka, uh, through uh, the organization she started, Code for America, which really is trying to teach government uh, how to do tech, you know, and to teach tech people uh, how important government is and how we actually, because this is, is, is a giant platform that we're building that we want to serve all of society. And we want it to be uh, you know, a, a generative platform as opposed to an extractive platform. And how do we do that? And what lessons can we apply? Yeah. So what, uh, in, in that work, what have been some of the um, most surprising lessons to the tech people that we've learned as you've tried to work with government? Well, probably the most important lesson is one that, that uh, it, it really isn't about the tech it's about paying attention to the users, you know, which is, uh, yeah, or and in some cases paying attention to the, the, the government as, as, a, as a, a sort of an intermediary. So if you look at uh, the two biggest services that we uh, have today, uh, uh, rolling back 10 years, Code for America started as a fellowship program, small teams of, of developers, designers, uh, going out and working with cities. And we did that for three or four years. And then we, we kind of hit on a couple of projects and we said, these need to go to scale. And the first of those was a, a project that had been started with the city and county of San Francisco to improve uh, basically the process of people applying for food stamps because California was spending millions of dollars, actually literally on the system, hundreds of millions of dollars, almost a billion dollars uh, uh, to try to get people their benefits. And they were like, our and it started in San Francisco, they're like, our, our, our participation rate is abysmal. You know, people who are eligible aren't signing up. Why is that? And, you know, they, they kind of originally think, well, well, you guys will make an app for that. You know, we didn't make an app. We didn't, we, that was sort of not how we started. How we started was just debugging the process. And we said, well, you know, you guys have a digital front end. You're spending millions of dollars advertising this digital front end. It was called uh, My Benefits Calwin. Uh, you start with the name, pretty terrible, but, um, and uh, CalFresh is the name of the program in, in, uh, in, in California. And, and he said, let's try applying. And they discovered that A, it didn't work on a mobile phone uh, and it didn't work in libraries. And those are the two ways that their target audience would 
try to use an online service, right, for, like this. They don't have, you know, uh, network home computers often. And so uh, uh, why didn't it work on library computers? Well, library computers have a half hour timeout and their application took an hour to, f uh, to fill out and uh, they gave people no way to save their work. They clearly never tested it in the environment of the people who they, you know, and why did it take an hour? Well, because it was this consortium of counties. This is where you have to look to the supplier side and say, what are, what's wrong here? And they'd all stuffed in their own questions. And, uh, you know, it turned out you only needed, you know, a half dozen questions to get an application started. So we built a little mobile app uh, that took, you took the minimal set of questions. And it was really very much an MVP in the, you know, lean startup sense. It literally, uh, you know, people filled out a form, you know, filled out this, this little mobile app. And then we, we generated a fax, which we sent into the social services office. <laughs> and- uh, That's amazing. Yeah, o over time, um, you know, we actually, you know, built an application. We, we figured it out by actually texting with the users. And, and, and we started finding, again, it's this, you had to work both sides of the market. You had to listen to the users and go, oh. And by the way, the thing was open source and it spread to six or eight other counties. And then eventually the state said, hey, we want you to do this for the whole state. Uh, and, and, you know, we've, we've kind of built a model where this, this really took over and now we're taking it to other states. But um, the critical thing was, was just debugging the process by texting, which is sort of the superpower that we have that government doesn't really understand, texting with the users as they went through the process. You know, just heavy, intense, you know, follow your users. And, and you go, oh, uh, you know, I, I had to start over because I missed my appointment you know, because they send out a paper letter telling you the date of your, you know, it's a telephone appointment, but they're going to call you. And if you miss it, you have to start over. And it turns out that 25% of the letters in one county were going out after the date of the appointment, wow. <laughs> you know? And, and so they were just throwing away half, you know, 25% of their users just because of bad process. Other cases, you know, we just did pipeline analysis. So when you send out this form or you ask this question, uh, this is where you lose uh, you know, 10% here, use, you know, 5% here, um, you know, things that, that Silicon Valley knows, but there really was no process on the, on the, on the, the government side to actually even ask those questions. So we became an intermediary helping, help being the voice of the user into the government and changing their processes. Um, and, and Jen sometimes calls it apps to ops. You know, you're building an app to instrument the government process so that you can make the process smarter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, was it, were there any um, hurdles that you had to overcome with rules and regulations around talking to citizens about using these things? Or was that uh, pretty straightforward? Well, you know, part of our, our uh, success, I think, was that we were, we were a quasi-rogue operation. You know, we had a, a you know, like a, a partner inside government but we weren't actually working for the government, particularly after we did that, we did this first fellowship year, uh, but it really was this real entrepreneurial group of, of fellows who after the project year ended, the, the model normally was we do a project and then we would turn it over to the government and they would try to hire, maybe try to hire the fellows or they would figure out other ways to carry it on. Sometimes the fellows say, oh, this could be a startup. Well, we actually you know, birthed about 10 startups in the early years, but this one, we had three fellows who said, we just want to keep working on this. And they literally, uh, you know, we, we kind of scraped together a little funding, although I think originally they were just doing it 
because they didn't want to quit. <laughs> and uh, uh, so they were a kind of rogue operation and that gave them the freedom not to ask permission. And, and so, uh, and we've really built a model now where we build things with philanthropy and then we scale them with government dollars. So, uh, you know, Get CalFresh is now paid for almost entirely by the state of California. Uh, through, basically, they, they, had, they had to tweak some of the rules. Uh, they realized they had a, a, a source of funding where they would pay food banks to help sign people up. And they said, oh, well, we can just use that same money for you guys to do online outreach. Um, but, but we built it, you know, with philanthropy because that gave us the freedom not to have to ask permission. And I think that is often difficult in a government context, but usually it's, it's a partnership, you know, on our other signature project today, which is sort of clearing, uh, cr uh, uh criminal records that, uh, you know, that are eligible to be cleared from, you know, like they, if you just give you a little background on that, people who, uh, have served their time or maybe they had, were, were, uh, had a criminal conviction for something that's no longer a crime, uh, such as, you know, marijuana usage, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and actually, this turns out there was a proposition, another proposition 47, which turned a whole set of things from, you know, crimes into misdemeanors. Uh, you know, there's a real consequence if you have a crime on your record. You can't get public housing. Uh, it turns out you can't even drive your kid uh, in, on a school field trip. Uh, you can't get, often can't get a job. So clearing your record's a big deal. And people had spent tens of millions of dollars getting these propositions passed. But they never thought about the implementation. And that's again, part of the key insight that we've had uh, uh, at Code for America, which is, you know, the implementation matters. Um, you know, the, the, when go people pass a law, if they don't think about the implementation, it's just may turn out to be nothing like what they imagine. And in this case, with, with these propositions that decriminalize various things, you know, their implementation was, well, people who have these crimes on their record can apply. Uh, they have to go to the DA's office, get their record. They have to fill out a bunch of paperwork. They probably have to hire a lawyer. Again, not thinking about the actual users. They can't afford to do this. They don't have the time to do this. And so, you know, despite the tens of millions of dollars to pass these laws, only a, a few thousand people have, have taken advantage of it. And so we started out actually building an app that was a lot like Get CalFresh. It was designed to help people through the process. And then we realized this process doesn't need to exist at all. And, and actually at about the same time, the, D, the district attorney in San Francisco realized the same thing. He was like, why are we making people apply? You know, we should just automatically clear the records. And unfortunately they weren't tech savvy and their idea of automatically clearing the records was hiring a bunch of paralegals who would fill out the forms uh, you know, without people having to ask, but it was still this painful process. And we go, this is just changing a record in the, in the, in the state's own database. And, uh, and uh, you know, again, so we built a, a sort of a hack from the outside, which is, okay, we'll download all the records for San Francisco. We had already built a, a kind of a, a little, uh, you know, rap sheets are, are, they're kind of coded like medical records. You'll see all these strange little codes and you have to know what they are. And we'd written a program that could read a rap sheet and decide, oh, well, this is a violent offense. So therefore it's not eligible. This is a, a nonviolent offense for something that's been cleared. You're eligible, good, you're good to go. 
and then automatically fill out the application to the court to, to get these cleared. And we cleared 9,000 in, in, you know, in a couple of hours <laughs> and, and, and it was in San Francisco and they were like, oh my God, it was that easy? <laughs> and, uh, and so we've taken, we're taking that uh, actually statewide and nationwide also. But it's this sort of, you know, sometimes you have to get close enough to the process to understand what's wrong with it and then throw it away. And that's another key piece of, of product design, which is, you know, getting close enough to make it better. Yeah. I think there's a lot of lessons in there for, for product. Um, the, you know, understanding the real problem you're solving and not just the problem someone tells you you're supposed to solve for them. Yeah. And that's often an iterative process. I mean, throughout my career, I've watched kind of the game of leapfrog. And I actually, in my book, I talk uh, quite a bit about the history of, of online ride hailing uh, in that way. All of the steps, and, and this, this came from, uh, you know, one coming in, you know, this, this came from another, and how they leapfrogged each other to kind of finally develop the model. And I think the same is true in uh, many other areas, uh, you know, online e-commerce, you know, how various obstacles had to be overcome and somebody would take a step forward and then somebody go, oh, if we can do that, then we can do this as well. Um, I'm wondering, uh, so I've been reading your WTF book and still have some more ways to go. And I'm wondering, what are your prescriptions on the most effective way for us to overcome these challenges? Like sometimes, sometimes these things, they, they, they just seem like, you know, there's this Herculean task of trying to write the system. And, um, and I'm curious, you know, I can see that you're, you're spreading the message and you're writing, um, writing and talking about it, but who are the people we most need to convince? Do we need to convince the founders or the venture capitalists or the citizens or everybody? What do you think? Well, I think in some ways we, need to make space for people to build different kinds of businesses. You know, I, I think that if I had been in a venture capital type environment, I would never have done any of the things that I've done because the timeline to get it right is quite small. And that's why so many companies fail, right? You, you don't really have much time to get it right. Uh, you know, I've been doing my business for 40 years and I built in the course of that, you know, I built four or five, maybe six businesses, you know, sort of within my own business, some of which we've continued, some of which, you know, some of them had a, a great run of success. So, you know, it's, it's a uh, now forgotten piece of history, but, uh, you know, O'Reilly created not only the first commercial website, uh, but we also created the first uh, PC-based web server. Uh, which we sold and, you know, and, and kind of validated the market because we said everybody who has a web browser should have a web server, you know, it grew to a business about $3 million before Microsoft uh, woke up and said, oh, uh, we really need to do this. Sorry, we have to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, you know, we were okay with that. And, you know, not, you know, we would like to have that go on and succeed, but part of our goal has always been to catalyze the market. And having the ability, you know, because everything we've done is pay as you go, uh, you know, we try things and, and we just have had a lot of time to kind of tweak and 
explore and figure out what things really resonate with us. And we're not desperately going, you know, we have to hit this some kind of hyper growth knee. You know, we basically, you know, had slow and steady growth over a very long period. Wait, you know, wait, you know, typical venture capital firm only lasts 10 years. You know, they have no provision for a company to last 40 years unless it exits, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, we need a lot more slow businesses. Uh, as, as one person said, we need fewer startups and, and, and more finish ups. You know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, that's how business really used to be. You know, let's not say there isn't, a, there's a real place for venture capital. It really can uh, create enormous fuel for, you know, a rocket ship. But if you're not a rocket ship, then, you know, and you try to take uh, on rocket fuel, you usually burn up. And so what we've been trying to do in our venture firm, uh, one of the businesses we started is a small early stage venture firm called O'Reilly Alphatech Ventures. But my partner, Bryce Roberts, uh, in the four, our fourth fund is really focused on something he's calling IndyVC, Indy.VC, mm -hmm. which is really, you know, the message to founders is we want to be the last money you need to take. Uh, the goal mm -hmm. is catalyze companies that are focused on uh, cash flow and profits, and they actually pay the investors back through dividends rather than through an exit. Now, not to say that you know if, if you hit a rocket ship, then you can take you know additional venture capital, uh, you know go for the go for the exit, and, and you know we'll convert and go along for the ride. But you don't have to, and uh, you know because there are a lot of businesses that are not venturable that get uh, burned up by by the need of venture capitalists to have them grow faster. And, uh, you know, you can have a very, very nice business uh, that serves the world without, you know, becoming a rocket ship. And uh, that I, I like to think, you know, we've ha had a lot of impact on this industry. Uh, we've, you know, created employment for, you know, thousands of people over, over the decades and, and uh, you know, creating value should be part of that circular you know, economy. I mean, and I think we'll get there with tech. I mean, I, I do think that, that, um, you know, there's this period in an industry where pouring so much fuel on the fire does lead to a, a lot of, of, of churning through opportunities. And the problem with that for entrepreneurs is you're, you're part of the fuel. You're not actually the guaranteed winner. You know, the, the investors are, the guaranteed winners. Now, it, it's interesting because VCs will say in their defense, well, most VCs don't actually, you know, make their returns. Yeah, but they get enormous fees in the meantime. You know, they, they get paid very well, even if they're failing. And entrepreneurs are often uh, just the hired help in the VC model. And yes, some of them get really rich, but most don't. And so building a business that you can uh, you know, control serving people, uh, a, you know, at a much slower pace is often, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, well, let me put it this way. It's just, it's another model that entrepreneurs should consider. So if you go to the NDVC site, you'll, you'll see sort of some of the background on, on how Bryce is approaching that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, to me, that's, that is so important. And I think that um, 
Yeah, I think I think it would be an understatement to say that uh, O'Reilly Media has made a huge impact. Um, and the idea, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs want impact or or lasting you know, they, they want to do something big. Um, and sure, a lot of them want to get rich, but I think that's, there's a lot of people who are looking for other things as well, especially in this day and age with, um, you know, the way the world is today, that I feel like the more stories we can share about this kind of success and impact and all the things that you've spun off um, and the people who've, yeah. you know, grown from the content they get um, is, uh, I, I think I think you're right that it's something that you, if you had you know tried to raise venture funds to do this, you wouldn't have had the time to to learn and adjust and make sure it was making the impact you wanted. Yeah, uh, I think that the, you know coming back to the the regenerative agriculture model, you know one of our um, slogans at O'Reilly has has been for many decades has been create more value than you capture. And if you think about farming in the regenerative model, the soil is better when you, after you finish growing your crops. In the extractive model, the soil is worse. And, and, and that is the secret to a circular system. You know, you make everything around you better. And there's a wonderful passage in Victor Hugo's uh, Les Miserables, the novel that was, uh, you know, the basis for the, the musical, uh, in which uh, the, the main character, uh, at one point is, is a businessman. And, and, he, and, and there's this description about how he made everyone around him more prosperous. And I think that should be our ideal, you know, that we live our life and we run our business in such a way that we make everyone around us better. And that doesn't mean that we don't compete. There's a, there's a kind of healthy competition in which we make our competitors better as well. Mm-hmm. And they make us better. Uh, and there's a kind of unhealthy competition where it's seen as winner takes all. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen, um, there's, uh, there's actually some data on, this is just a specific example, but one of my favorite ways to sort of underscore the point for people who are skeptical is um, there's some data on pricing models for subscription SaaS companies and uh, how the different pricing models correlate with growth. And one of the things that I've seen, and I, I can put it in the show notes, is, um, is some data that when you tie the pricing to the outcomes you're driving for your customers, yeah. um, you know, when you tie it to the value that they're getting, and when your pricing scales, so that the more value they get from you, the more, the more they pay you, but they don't just pay it all up front, um, that is the, the best pricing model for for growth and i think it's it comes back to this idea it's you know the if you create more value than you capture you will capture more value than if you just capture all the value because then there's none left to be creating you know yeah i think that's absolutely right well uh, on that we're probably at a place to wrap don't you think Yep, I think so. Um, I really want to thank you, um, not just for talking with me today, but I, I also wanted to mention that um, I got, when I got my, my start in tech, um, I had not studied software, and uh, my husband had a Safari bookshelf, and that's how I started learning about the software world. So I feel like, uh, you know, enormously grateful that you created that product, and this was back when it was, you know, the, the like PDF ebooks and other forms of ebooks before the Kindle. And I read the the Cathedral in the Bazaar, which I know yeah. you wrote about in your book, 
and um, and it's how I learned what product management was and and how I uh, managed to walk into companies being the the person who knew more than the others about agile software development. So um, thank you so much for for creating this ecosystem because it's it's impacted me personally as well as you know tons of people around the world. Well, just to be clear, we didn't create it. We we tried to to to, to help grow it. And I think that's really central to our story is that, you know, our, 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 our sort of our mission statement is changing the world by spreading the knowledge of innovators. Uh, we don't see ourselves as creating it. We see ourselves as helping people who are inventing the future and we're trying to support them and to, to share what they know and help them share what they know with others so that they can follow in their footsteps. Well, thank you so much for doing that. It's so valuable. All right. Thank you. Hey, Holly here. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I wanted to share with you that at H2R Product Science, we run lots of workshops and we'd love to have you join us. We teach the product science method, a step-by-step -step process for evaluating product opportunities and laying the foundations for high growth product development. We help product leaders and startup founders identify the right products and features to build and develop the support to do so. We do this at private workshops. We also do it at public workshops, both in person and online. If you'd like to learn more, check it out at h2rproductscience.com workshops. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.